Okay, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay, and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Okay, welcome back to this episode of Raising Daughters. Dr. Tim Jordan here, and thank you for coming by every two weeks to listen in on these. Um, I oftentimes uh, talk about books and things, and I uh, many times have interviewed young people as well, but today we, we're going to interview an author. He's one of my favorite authors. Oh. I've read three of his books. He's written several. The first book I read of Daniel Pink's was called A Whole New Mind, Why Right-Brainers Will Rule the, uh, the Future, the second Daniel Pink book I read was called Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. And his most recent book, which I read, is called When, The Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. And that's the book we're going to talk about today. Daniel Pink, welcome to Raising Daughters. Tim, thanks for having me. It's good to be with you. Yeah, I know you're a busy person, so I, I know our listeners really appreciate your time. I'm happy to be here. So uh, you've put, you wrote a lot in this book about timing and all that, but I wanted to talk about the things that pertain to parents, to kids, things sure. like that. The first thing that you talk about that I want to talk about in the book is our energy level is not flatline all day, that there are peaks and valleys. And I want you to talk just for a minute about that and also how it might pertain to, to kids and their schedules. Yeah, uh, well, it's a it's a really important, a really important point. And I think that's the second part of the question is actually um, more complicated than it might look on the surface. So what we know is that it's not just our energy levels that fluctuate during the day, although they do. It's a big part of it. Uh, our mood changes during the day. And perhaps most important, our cognitive abilities change during the day. And uh, you know, we have this notion, as, as you say, that the premise for how we schedule things, whether you know, from, from schools to offices, is that our cognitive abilities remain constant all the way through the day. And that's just not true. Um, what we know is that we are you know, smarter, sharper, more creative, less creative at different times of day. And in general, here's what we know. Um, most people move through the day in three stages, a peak, a trough, a recovery. Uh, most people move through it in that order. Uh, peak early in the day, trough in the middle of the day, recovery later in the day. Um, now, there are a group of people who are night owls who are much more complicated. Um, but generally, it's that order, peak, trough, recovery. During the peak, that's when we're most vigilant. We're able to bat away distractions. That makes it the best time to do heads-down focused analytic work. During the trough, early to mid-afternoon, we all joke around about it. We all say, oh, I'm tired. Da, da, da. It's a terrible time of day. There's all kinds of evidence that, that performance drops during that. And then during the recovery, it's a very interesting time of day. Our mood is higher, but our vigilance is lower, which makes it a good time for things like, uh, like, like, like brainstorming. And if we're just a little bit more intentional about the when of what we do, uh, there's very, very clear evidence that people will perform at a higher level. Now, when it comes to kids, it's a, you know, there, there are a lot of other issues when it comes to um, uh, students, especially because all, um, there's a you know, big, big change, as you know, as you work on it, there's a big change that happens in adolescence. Uh, all kinds of big changes, obviously. One of them has to do with people's circadian rhythms. Yeah, I want to talk about that, too, because I work with a lot of teen girls, uh, middle school, high school, and college, and they're all sleep deprived. Nobody's yeah, that's yeah, terrible. And it's which everything falls down from there. 
Absolutely. I think school policies, especially when you're talking about middle school and high schoolers, yeah, is a big part in that. Uh, there's no question about it. So, so let's let's take a step back and talk about what we know. Uh, there's this, there's a whole field called chronobiology, you know, chrono time biology study of life that looks at our biological rhythms, particularly our diurnal rhythms. And um, they also uh, the field of chronobiology has come up with this idea of chronotypes. Right. So we all like to think, hey, I'm a morning person. I'm an evening person. It sounds like folklore. It's actually science. Uh, and what we know in the distribution of the total population is that about 15 percent of us are pretty strong morning people, larks. About 20% of us are very strong evening people, owls, and about two-thirds of us are kind of in the middle with a slight tilt toward lark. Um, but there are big changes over the course of the age span. Uh, little kids are pretty larky, as any parent of little kids knows. They get up early, start running around like crazy people early. Uh, but then in the mid-teens, all the way through the mid-20s, in many people, not all, but in many, many, many people, there is a massive move toward lateness. Um, and so parents look at teenagers who are sleeping until 10 o'clock in the morning as lazy. No, they're teenagers. That's how their bodies are uh, uh, constructed right now. Um, and so from you know, the mid-teens to the mid-20s, there's, for many kids, there's a very, very, very sharp, like three hours, four hour move toward lateness. And this has all kinds of consequences. Uh, I think that the most glaring consequence or, or perhaps the most concrete consequence in schools is school start time. Uh, school start times for teenagers, not for these little kids, for teenagers is generally too early. The American Academy of Pediatrics says that school for teenagers should not start before 8.30 a.m. And yet you have schools, the average school start time is a little bit after eight for teenagers. Uh, and yet you have, that, that's like, so that's like, so, so, it's it's the it's that's the average, not the median, but let's just call it the median. Okay, so half the schools start earlier than that. But when you when you think about schools starting that early, you have to think of you know, walk back and think how when kids have to start getting ready. So you have teenagers getting on buses at 6 45 a.m. That is not a good idea. And the entire pediatric profession is telling school districts around America this is a bad idea. And we know from a mound of evidence that there are several deleterious effects from, from early school start times for teenagers. And we know from the handful or a growing handful, more than a handful, but a growing number of school districts that have pushed back school start time, not crazy, pushing it to 9 or 9.15, that they have seen higher test scores, fewer dropouts, fewer problems with uh, obesity, even things like depression in the Western United States. Uh, where there was a big, a big study of some districts in the Western United States, uh, big declines in teenage car accidents too. And it goes, and a lot of it goes to, to sleep deprivation, curing that sleep deprivation that you were talking about before. In your book, Drive, I know we're not going to talk about that today, but you talk a lot about motivation and yeah. research. I, I've read Alfie Cohn's work years ago. Your yeah. book had a lot of other data. We have 50, 60 plus years of evidence and research that says, it's so important to focus on kids' intrinsic motivation, and yet the schools and parenting hasn't shifted. We have tons of evidence now showing that if you start later with these high school kids, that they do better, blah, blah, blah. Why, why, do, we, why do we not shift? Why have schools not adopted a, a later starting time for high schoolers? Um, I'll give you my theory. It has a, has a, it's a, has a very fine point on it. Um, Later school start times are inconvenient for adults. 
That's what it is. Nobody is rebutting the evidence coming from the Centers for Disease Control or from the American Academy of Pediatrics or all these studies showing. No one's rebutting it on the science. They're basically ignoring it because if we change school start times, that can be inconvenient for adults. It's inconvenient for parents who may have a kid in elementary school and a kid in high school or a kid in elementary school and a kid in middle school. Wait, I have to drop them off. at you know, If they're not riding a school bus, I have to drop them off at different times. Uh, it's inconvenient for uh, athletic coaches who like school to start early and to end early. So there can be practices in the afternoon. Uh, and the truth is, uh, you know, I, I talked to a superintendent. I'll give you, I, I, I don't want to name him, but I talked to a superintendent maybe a year and a half ago about this. And, and he said, listen, you're right. Everybody knows we should do this. But, but when I became superintendent, my predecessor gave me some advice. And he said, there are three things you don't mess with as superintendent. Bells, balls, and buses. And this one affects all those things. So I, I just think, it's, in, I think it's, uh, it's inconvenient for adults. And it, that's, that's shameful. I think the same thing is true with your earlier comment, Tim, about you know, why, do we, why do we rely so much on these very controlling external mechanisms? Uh, because those are easier to put in place. Gotcha. And if we want to foster a sense of autonomy and mastery and purpose in schools, if you want kids to find their intrinsic motivation, if you want kids to be self-directed, that's difficult. That's a difficult thing to do. It's messy. Uh, it takes a lot of extra effort. And I think one of the things that we're, you know, at the, at the heart of much education policy is the question of whether these policies are going to be based on what's good for kids or what's convenient for adults. Yeah. Great answer. I, I've always just blamed the sports teams because it's convenient. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a, I, see, I, I actually think there's a bargain to be made here. Like, I, I think that like what I'm thinking of is maybe you have, you, 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 you sent, you have like, you know, this academic, you have an academic day that begins in the morning later in the morning, maybe like till like, you know, nine to one. All right. And then maybe you have um, a lunch break and then athletic practice and then maybe have the kids come back later on. Yeah. I don't know. I don't yeah. know. But, but listen, coaches, coaches really, really, really do not like this. And what's interesting I, actually is that uh, if you talk to, um, if there's a, there are a few examples of Schools that have given kids, the students, the discretion, you know, you can start later or, or start earlier. And many of the students themselves actually started early because they want to get rid of, they want to get done with school earlier. We get um, but that's partly because of athletic practice. And then for some kids, uh, some kids have to work after school or take care of their younger siblings after school. And that's, a, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a, to me, that's a, a weightier issue than, than, um, um, you know, basketball practice. And I say that as a, as a father of a son who goes to basketball practice. Yeah. A 16-year-old who goes to basketball practice after school. Right. You know, another issue that, that you mentioned in your book that we've also ignored the data on is recess. You oh, know, that, totally. That one of my pet peeves. So yeah, talk- but here's the thing. Well, I, I mean, I'm glad you said that because, again, you know, there. here's the thing about a lot of these certain aspects of policy and certain aspects of decision-making. And this is the core idea in this book about timing, is that when we make our timing decisions, we typically make them based on intuition and guesswork. And that's the wrong way to do it. There's evidence out there that gives us the, the, the data, the, the, the information to make better, smarter, more intelligent decisions. Um, and recess is a great example of that. 
uh, we tend to look at recess as this kind of nicey, nice thing, a concession of sorts. We tend to think that rigor means that you, you, you never relent. You never give anybody a break. And what the science tells us is that is wrong, not morally wrong. I mean, it's just factually wrong. It's empirically wrong. Uh, there's a whole mountain now of research on breaks. And, and what it shows is that breaks for anybody, whether they're seven-year-olds or 67-year-olds, uh, breaks enhance performance. The way that humans perform better is if they have breaks. And, you know, go back to sports. Athletes know this. Musicians know this. I, listen, you know, I'm not going to blame anybody because I got this wrong, too. I'd always believed that, you know, amateurs took breaks, but professionals didn't, that professionals powered through. Yeah. Uh, and that's just empirically wrong. And what we know is... Um, Recess can actually enhance learning. The taking away recess in the name of learning is a bad idea. It's, it's counterproductive. I'll give you one quick example of this. Um, and again, it, and it goes to your earlier question, Tim, about how our cognitive abilities change over the course of the day. There's a really important study out of Denmark that, uh, that looked at standardized test scores. Uh, in Denmark, students take uh, standardized tests. And the way that the testing system works is they take them on computers, but the typical school doesn't have enough computers for every student. So the students are randomly assigned to take the test at different times of day. Now, we would think, okay, it doesn't really matter whether Hans takes the test at 10 a.m. or 2 p.m., but it does. Yeah. It turns out that kids who take the test in the afternoon score as if they score considerably lower. They score as if they missed two weeks of school. That's a big deal right there. But what the Danish testing officials realized is that if you give kids those afternoon test takers, a, t a snack and a 20 to 30 minute break to run around before they take that afternoon test, their scores go back up. Yeah. So, so denying them recess is a way to lower their test scores. Giving them research is a way to, is a way to uh, raise them. You know, we've had, we have throughout history had all these uh, intensification movements with education because we're behind, blah, blah, blah. And I think what I tell parents a lot when I give talks is I think one of the fears that's driving some of these things is our fear that our kids are going to get behind. They're not going to keep Total. right here. Absolutely. All the time, parents saying, I want my kid to have a leg up. Absolutely. Edge. And so recess is about parents, but it's about this whole pounding away of, like you said, rigor is a good word. But I mean, I, be I believe in rigor. Okay. Yeah. Here's the thing. Like rigor is uh, in any, in, 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 you know, rigor in any dimension of life improves performance um, in, in music, in sports, uh, in, in studying. You want, education to be rigorous but rigorous doesn't mean you never take a break yeah. rigorous means that you challenge people but you actually use science to recognize that the way the human brain works the way the human body works is in more it functions better as a set of intervals rather than this constant unrelenting yeah. grind like, like it, it doesn't it doesn't work that way we know this a lot about learn we know this a lot about learning you know like our brains need time to consolidate. This is one reason sleep is important. This is one reason why taking breaks while you're learning is important because it allows you to consolidate some of the learning. It allows, you know, and so again, at some level, it's the, the, the we're, we're framing the argument wrong. What we should be doing is framing the argument about, about recess in a very hard headed way. We must have recess if we want our kids to learn. And instead, it's framed, and we see it in certain state legislators, legislatures like New Jersey. New Jersey had a bill to um, require recess for elementary school kids. Then Governor Christopher Chris Christie vetoed it, saying that's a stupid idea because he didn't know anything about how learning works, what the science tells us. And so, 
we should we should be embracing recess because um, it makes kids better. Period. My daughter, my daughter teaches a, a kindergarten class in the inner city here in St. Louis. So I visit the class. My wife and I teach, you know, to read stories and things. And we come at lunchtime because it's fun. And then they're supposed to have recess. But yeah. time I've been there, the kids have missed the recess because they're being punished. They're, they're sitting wow. at tables in the cafeteria. And, and they don't say, okay, table three, go ahead. They say individual kids. And there's like 100 kids in this, ca- in this cafeteria. And, by, and they don't go outside to have recess. They go outside to sit in a line until everybody's out. And there's some kids who are wiggling yeah. and screaming. They yeah, yeah. Have recess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, it's a hard problem. You know, I have empathy for the people who are working in the schools. But I think at some level, there are certain schools that just put a real, real premium on control. Yeah. Uh, more than any other than any other virtue, and what we know is that, I mean, I mean, this is the whole issue with this is the whole reason that people learn more, perform better when they have some degree of autonomy, when they have some amount of self direction, because the opposite of that is control. And human beings, whether they're again, they're six year old human beings or fifty six year old human beings. Uh, human beings have only two reactions to control. They comply or they defy. So you have in many schools, you have kids who are defiant. They're not learning much. Kids who are compliant, they're not learning much. Uh, well, you really want our kids to be engaged. Yeah. You know, um, I wanted to ask you, I, before I went on, I decided to take a five-minute break because I read your book a year ago. And I went outside with my dog. I uh, shoveled up his poop. Other than the poop part, there are some things that actually are really important when you take a break that makes your break more beneficial. Why don't you talk about that? Yeah. Well, poop is not one of them, but I mean, if it if it intrudes on your break, that's life. Uh, yeah. No, it's a great question because because again, you know, um, we know. I mean, it's frustrating a little bit because we know stuff. All right, we know about breaks. All right. So so we're not making like a nicey nice philosophical argument. We're actually drawing on evidence from research. And here's what it tells us. First of all, breaks are part of performance. They're not a deviation from performance. High performers take breaks. Second, to your question, Tim, we know a lot about what kind of breaks are most restorative. And there's a sort of set of design principles, essentially. Uh, We know that um, uh, something is better than nothing. So even like a one or two minute break or that five minute break you took is better than having no break at all. Second, uh, we know that, uh, I think it's pretty interesting, social is better than solo. That is, breaks with other people tend to be more restorative than breaks on our own. And that's true even for introverts. Uh, we know that moving beats sedentary. And there's, you know, I think that, I think people are more or less convinced of that, that sitting around is, is not great for us. Getting up and moving is better for us, especially when we take a break. Um, we know that outside is better than inside. And so there's some remarkable research. I think it's undercovered about the restorative effects of simply seeing nature or being in nature. Um, and uh, we also know that fully detached beats semi-detached. So a break is a break. It's not, uh, I'm going to take a walk outside while I check my email. Um, or, um, you know, a break isn't um, a third grader uh, uh, uh using recess to do some extra math problems. Yeah. Uh, a, a break is a, a break is a break. And if you look at those principles of, you know, social, um, outside, moving, it, it sounds a lot like recess, actually. An unplug. Yeah, an unplug. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. 
It's also interesting to me that it's not, I mean, it's best cases you go outside and you're in green space, you're in nature. But there's also research, I can't remember if I read your book or somewhere else, that even just looking at nature. Absolutely, yeah. Nature, that's better. That's, 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 that, that, absolutely. I mean, I have my office here from where I'm talking to you. I mean, is straight ahead is my backyard. It's not like a lush, beautiful backyard, but hey, there's a tree, some bushes, some grass. Uh, and that in uh, uh, that house, I, I really do think that the restorative benefits of nature have has really, really uh, been uh, 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 undersold. I think the evidence there is is really powerful. Yeah, tell us too. I mean, just for a few more minutes, if, is it okay if I get, ask you a couple more questions? Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, the ideal nap because that was I, I can't take naps. I'm not a napper. I just can't fall asleep in the middle. Yeah, time. for people who again do very specific research. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I mean, there's research on naps, and, and basically, what nap, what it shows is that naps are generally pretty good at it, pretty good for us. Naps are kind of a cleanser for our brain, and, and they can be useful. Uh, what surprised me was that the most effective naps are extremely short, um, maybe you know between 15 and 20 minutes long. Uh, you nap longer than that, and you begin to develop what's called sleep inertia, which is that groggy, boggy feeling you get when you wake up from a longer nap, and so. Uh, those very, very short naps, 15, 20 minutes, are really, really effective. Um, and I was someone who never napped. Well, I would nap and I would feel terrible afterwards. I would feel groggy and like, oh, my God, what? I just wasted a lot of time. Uh, so now I will occasionally nap, um, but I, I, I focus on those super, super, super short naps. And apparently you take a cup. And of it coffee. works, man. I'm telling you, it works. You drink a cup yeah. of coffee right before you take your nap too, right? Yeah, if you drink a cup of coffee before you take a nap... Uh, that short nap, what it takes about 25 minutes for caffeine to enter our bloodstream. And so you can take that short nap. And when you're waking up, you get a second boost of caffeine hitting your bloodstream. So that's a, uh, and actually, you know, I wrote about that in this book and I got a lot of, I've got a lot of email about that um, from um, uh, two categories of people, uh, people, pe two, ca two categories of experience, people saying, this is how I got through the military, or this is how I got through graduate school. I didn't know that was a thing. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, my, I, my last year of fellowship training was in Boston with, with T. Barry Brazelton. I'm not sure if you know who he was. Sure. Of course. Iconic uh, pediatrician. So anyway, he, he had a concept he called touch points and touch points meant that kids development is not a straight line that it goes in upspurts and then uh, leveling off like Charlie Brown's shirt. And those yeah. upspurts were when they were going through a big developmental change, a big leap in development and the flattened places are, Places where they get through that, there's a period of homeostasis until the next big leap. And you sort of touched, you didn't, you didn't talk, you didn't uh, label it touch points, but you talked about how teams also kind of function a little bit sort of like that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is the work of Connie Gersick. Um, you know, the, the, what you described is what Stephen Jay Gould and Niles Eldridge called punctuated equilibrium in evolution. That is, evolution. I mean, they didn't use this term. They didn't use Brazelton's touch points. But evolution is, according to them, looking at the fossil record, it's very similar. Evolution doesn't go steadily like that. It goes for very, 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 very long periods where not a heck of a lot is happening. Then, boom, a lot happens. And Connie Gersick did research on teams showing that when a team navigates its way through – a work team navigates its way through a project – uh, at the beginning of a project, they often do very, very little actual work. And there's a certain moment uh, when they throw off the old ways of doing things, a punctuation mark, and suddenly they start going. And what she found over and over again is that that punctuation mark is the middle, the, the midpoint of, not a touch point, but the midpoint 
of uh, a project. So you give a team. So her research found that, thir- you know, give a team 31 days to do something. They get started in earnest on day 16. Give a team, you know, 11 days, they get started in earnest on day on, on day six or something about that, that midpoint that, um, and, and, and what she found is that it, it, some of it is simply somebody on the team signaling the time saying, Hey, we wasted half of our time. We better get going. I run summer camps for uh, girls in grade school through high school. And I, my first one starts Saturday. So I have 25, oh, wow. 25 high school girls showing up. But one of the things I found fascinating in your book was I always tell our camp counselors, bring some new songs because it's so fun to walk down to the lake singing songs. It's so fun to sit around a campfire singing songs. And besides the fun of doing that at camp, there's also research that shows there's some really good benefits to singing together. I really like that. There is amazing research about the benefits of singing together. In some ways, mind-boggling research. Uh, choral singing ends up being incredibly good for us. Like, I mean, I mean, nearly as good for us as things like meditation or or exercise. Uh, it has uh, an effect, and not not singing as exactly as you say, not singing, but singing together exactly as you say. So solo singing. If I go around walking around the house singing, that's not going to do me any good. Not going to do anybody else any good. But uh, but singing in group singing is 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 powerful uh, on a um, uh, psycho a psychological level. People report feeling better afterwards. But I think what's interesting from you know perhaps you as a physician is that on a physiological level you see responses, you see higher pain thresholds, you see increased production of immunoglobulin. Um, it's really 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 amazing. And then on a social side of it. What you see among children, especially, is that when children do these kinds of synchronized activities, whether it's singing together or even swinging in sync on a swing set, uh, that they actually, that after that, for at least some amount of time, they're more likely to engage in what's called pro-social behavior, meaning that they're going to be more cooperative, uh, might smile more, uh, might help out people more. Um, there's one piece of research showing that when, when kids did these synchronized activities afterwards, they were more likely to play with kids who didn't look like them. No, I have two quick questions, if that's okay. And remind me to have you tell my listeners how to get on your newsletter list. Sure thing. Newsletter. First quick question, after doing all the research and writing the book, how did it alter the way your day goes? It made a big effect. It had a big effect on me. Um, uh, You know, I am much more of a lark than an owl. I'm not a strong lark, but I'm more of a lark than an owl. So, um, so I'm best off doing my analytic work during the morning. Um, and uh, I sort of had a hunch uh, about that, but I was, I, I actually became much more, um, disciplined about that or much more rigid about that. So, so for writing, here's the thing, like, so I'm a writer and, and, and writing depends on vigilance because, Every writer knows that as soon as you sit down to write, the whole universe is, tries to distract you. So you want to be able to do, you want to be able to write at your at your point of least distractibility, which for someone like me is the morning. So what I've done and is you know it's how I wrote this book is uh, on writing days just clear the decks, come into my office not not insanely early like eight thirty, um, and give myself a word count of X number of words eight hundred words nine hundred words five hundred words whatever it happens to be at that moment. And actually, don't bring my phone with me into the office. Don't open up my email. Don't take any phone calls. Don't do anything until I hit my number. And come back and because because there is, again, my brain power changes over the course of a day. And I have that, you know, call it a three and a half hour window, say, of where of, of heightened vigilance, where 
I'm able to do the very hard heads down work of writing. And so I shouldn't let other things intrude into that answering email, looking at Twitter, picking up the phone, um, you know, going to NBA.com to watch basketball highlights or blues highlights. Yeah. Or that'd be NHL.com, but yeah. One last quick question. You mentioned, I think it was this book about um, the value of writing a six word memoir. Was that this book? That, that was in another book, but thank you oh. for remembering that. Yeah. Um, I was wondering uh, if you wouldn't mind sharing yours. Well, I mean, so what, so this, the idea of a six word memoir is can you, um, um, come up with essentially an autobiography that you can distill into six words. Um, and I, I thought about that. I've, I think I've changed it over the, uh, over, over time. Um, and so if I had to come up with one right now on the spot, Oh, that works. Okay. Uh, would be something like, you know, he tried to figure things out. Ooh, that would, that would be, that would be it. Yeah. Cause I think that ultimately that's what I'm trying to that's what I'm trying to do. The world is an interesting place. Um, I actually think that it's less complicated than it appears on the surface. And, but you have to actually go dive into the muck and try to make sense of it. And um, for better or worse, that's what I have decided to do with my time. Nice. So t tell our listeners how they can get uh, onto your free subscription for your newsletter. Oh, thanks. The, uh, you just go to my website, which is danpink, D-A-N-P-I-N-K.com, and you can sign up for a newsletter. It goes out every two weeks, um, free, free of charge, free of advertising. Yeah, it's great because there's always a couple of quick little points. There's also a little... Yeah, yeah. It, it's short, it's short. And it sends every, 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 every episode I send out what I call Pinkcast, which is a super short, maybe two-minute video uh, that offers, tries to offer a science-based uh, tool or tip or ways to do things a little bit better. Yeah, I love those because they're short Thanks. and sweet. And I'm sure a lot of people, you know, we, we, I do a lot of things, writing and things too. And people are always saying people aren't going to read, people aren't going to watch. So two minutes or less, maybe there. Uh, yeah, there's a, you're exactly right. There's a reason why I do both, whatever this is, 300 page books and 90 second videos. Yeah. So thank you very much. The book is called When the Scientific Secrets of Perfect Timing. It's a great book. It's a lot of information. And the other two books, you go on his website. It was danpink.com. Is that what it was? Yep. yep. Danpink.com. And there's all kinds of information on there about all the things you do. I really appreciate you coming by. And Tim, it's been fun. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay. Do so you take care and keep writing? Thanks. Take breaks. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Daniel Pink. And I hope you also pick up his book, When, W-H-E-N. And also go to his website and check out all his other books he's written and also his uh, pink cast, which is awesome. His, his uh, bi-monthly newsletter. Uh, I also appreciate that you all listen in every two weeks to these podcasts. Uh, Daniel Pink is a very well-known author. And my um, guess is a lot of your friends probably have heard of him, read his books, have seen him on different shows and things. So this would be a great podcast to pass on to everybody, you know, so they can listen in and hear his knowledge and hear his wisdom. Thanks for coming by every two weeks for this. On the alternate weeks, of course, I have a blog that comes out as well. Check out my website at www.drtimjordan.com for information about those. And the books that I sell and our summer camps, all the things that we do. Thanks so much for, uh, for stopping in. I'll see you back here with a podcast in two weeks.
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.